in a world crying out for a top 10 show. John Roca and Matt Nost are here to bring you the top 10. Take it away, boys. Hello, Top 10 fans. This has got to be an anomaly for you. I understand that. First off, hearing my voice, if you're just listening to this. Secondly, if you're watching, well, there's someone missing from the mix. Uh, but this is the Top 10. I'm one of your two hosts, Matt Nost. And the usual co-host, John, is still under the weather. He got bronchitis after COVID. And uh, he is limiting you know, what he's doing. He's trying to rest up. And instead of denying you guys a second show um or at least two weeks of absences we decided to go ahead and uh, move forward and um i will have my co-host on mr andy merriweather from settle the score thought it uh, a fitting accompaniment for today's show and uh i keep looking down at where my old camera was and now i have my new camera that's if anybody's watching my eyes keep drifting down to anyway um <laughs> So that is it. John John will, fingers crossed, he'll be back next week. He'll be right as rain and everything will be fine. He's resting up at home. And uh, I've had bronchitis before. It's uh, I would take the flu over bronchitis any day of the week, uh, me personally. But please help me welcome on my co-host from Settle the Score, Mr. the one and only Mr. Andy Merriweather. How are you? I'm good. Thanks, Matt. Thank you for welcoming me on the show. Um, obviously, get well soon to John. I've had bronchitis, as you know. We've had to delay an episode uh of our show um for that and yeah it's not not nice especially after covid as well so that's quite a heavy one too um so hopefully he's back um asap but yeah i'm I'm excited to be on as you know i came from uh the audience of this show i was a fan and that's how we met Mm -hmm. um so yeah i was gonna don my um my top 10 t-shirt um that i actually have up in the wardrobe but anna my wife takes that as her uh, to bed T-shirt, so she wears yours and John's face to bed, and uh, I just look the other way in those moments. But here we are. <laughs> you don't want to look straight into my eyes. You know what? <laughs> you know what? I'm a fan. Um, but yeah, <laughs> it might take it above and beyond. Yeah, it's a little. Yeah, maybe, maybe on my second guest spot on top ten. But yeah. Um, I'm really, really excited to be a part of this. Um, I think we have a really cool topic. And uh, yeah, it's exciting to be this side of this show. And um, yeah, when John texts me, he's like, look, I don't want to not have a show out. And I agree with him, but I wasn't going to press the issue of can you make it? Can you can you do this? And because uh, up until his absence last week, we'd only had one other absence ever missing a show. Uh, which was with me with COVID. And in all the years we've done this, we have put out a show every week. We took a small hiatus at one point where the show kind of ended for a little while. Uh, but outside of that, when we're regularly doing it, we've, I mean, didn't matter vacations, whatever the case is, we taped in advance. So he texts me, he's like, look, how, how about you get somebody to join you? Uh, his first suggestion was you. Huh. And uh, 
it was a uh, one of my first thoughts once I read that sentence. I was like, "Oh, who'd be a good guess?" And uh, so it's, it's nice to know that he and I were simpatico in that idea. And I reached out to you and I said, "Hey, you got interest?" And thankfully, you said yes. And then I looked at the slate of movies coming out and was like, well, "What about this as a topic?" Which is movie set in London. Um, and I don't believe we've done it. I looked through all my old notes and then just did a general Google search with my name and everything else. And I cannot find, we've done other British themed, but not set in London, which sure. is, this is for so what, see how they run the new movie coming out. See how they run the Sam Rockwell, your twin and, yes. uh, Saoirse Ronan. Um, uh, what London themed show did you do when I saw you live when we first met? Then what what show was we that? We did American actors in British movies. So did the Excellent. British movies with American actors in it because we had done L.A. and we did movies based in L.A. when we did our live show. Yes, and they, so just to mix it up and do something different, so people wouldn't just automatically assume, oh, well, you'll do set in London or something like that. Uh, but it's the obvious. Oh, haven't you already done that? Especially for that specific show uh, and as best as i can find that is not the case no that's great i'm sure you'd recognize uh, that you were putting a similar list together no it, uh, it's a really interesting list um I, I i feel very confident in my my 10 but i also know that um i come from a completely i you know these are streets that i walk these movies we're going to be talking about so it will be interesting to see if there's quite a wild dynamic between our movies because I come from uh, a completely different country where we've discussed it on Settle the Score before. Some movies I haven't heard of, they never got released over here. You know, for the most part, we get everything. But, you know, there are some where it just didn't quite hit. Sure. Um, so, yeah, that will be interesting to see. Um, and vice versa, there might be some British movies set you know, in the, in the appropriate place that you hadn't heard of, or, you know, it might be movies that if I pitch them well enough, you'll go away and want to watch. So we'll see. There are a ridiculous number of movies up for consideration on this list. Right. Um, my side list is probably about 40 movies long. Wow. Gee. Just going through and be like, all right, that was set in London. And then it, some of them you have to go, well, 20% of the movies in London. I'm not counting that. I I had a cutoff. I had like a rough 60% cutoff, I think, in my head, not doing the minute-to-minute -minute math, but I kind of had it. If, yeah. If it starts in London, moves away, then I'm not kind of going with it, especially trying to restrict it to 10. That was kind of the rule for me. But I know you guys come at the game with two different rules, right? That's kind of how you play. It's like you can interpret the list. Uh, yeah, however how you, you like. like. Yeah. Yeah. Every once and again, we'll define it just be because sometimes the the topic idea is so abstract. You're like, hey, how exactly are you viewing this per se? <laughs> yeah. But usually it just, hey, this is what we're doing. And then we show up and there's no mention of criteria until we actually begin the show itself. Yeah. But like when we did Paris, there's surprisingly few movies set in Paris that I had seen. Now there are a, a number of them that uh, I had, so I could I easily make the list. But like I had dad Mission <clears> Impossible, <throat> uh, Mission Impossible what Fallout, because a good chunk of it does take pay, place in Paris, and I was like, well, enough of this movie takes place here. Whereas London, it was much easier. Right. 
the list of movies that have had an American release and I have seen that are based in London, there's, I mean, several hundred. So winnowing that down to, you know, 40-ish, something like that. And then actually down to the list that I set aside was 16, maybe 17 movies where I'm like, all right, all of these are in consideration and then just cutting it down from there. That's very interesting. I definitely don't have a list that large, but your film uh, repertoire <clears throat> is is vaster than I. So I, I'm ready to learn, I suppose I'm saying. I'm ready to it? fight. You know, I'm saying you're probably going to say movies that definitely have to go on the list. And I probably just have it in my blind spot. So now, that's by it. saying I have a larger repertoire, is that your coded way of saying I'm old, you son of a bitch? Or more time on your hands or any of those insults. But yeah, I don't know which one I was going with. I think you just you just are. A, I think you came to loving film. And then I think I watched a lot of films on repeat when I was young. Maybe children do that. But I think I was watching the same sort of 20 movies and didn't kind of expand. I was a collector of movies. I had a lot of Blu-rays, but they stayed in their cellophane or DVDs. Um, what, but yeah. As collector items? Like they were yeah, I kind of just had value? Shel- no, nothing like that. Just shelves. I'd go to Blockbuster. Remember Blockbuster? And I'd go there and I'd stack up like, you know, the three for 10 pound kind of thing and just stack them up. And then I'd get it within that uh, multiple. So if I had like 11 movies, I'd get down to the nine or I'd find one. And yeah, get to the multiple, take them to the till, get them home w- with very little intention of actually getting through them because you, you just kind of, I just liked the aesthetic, I think. Um, so we'll see. I I might not have watched as many movies as you. I think I'm, I think I'm okay with conceding on that, but we'll see. Well, I would imagine there's going to be some movies that you've got that I've never heard of or didn't get a wide release here, but it's set there, mm. you know. Uh, but you know, we'll, we'll see like on settle the score when we did our, we did a UK based show because we had two gentlemen on from the UK and then we sprung it on in the last minute. Hey, you know what? This yeah. is what we're going to do. And yeah. there was like five movies on that list. I don't think I'd ever seen maybe yes, six. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and some of the others I've seen once and a few of them I'd seen several times, but, uh, you know, hopefully there's, there's that discrepancy between the two lists so we come up with something varied and different but fun. i'd imagine there are yeah that's what i think i think it'll be fun it won't be the same two sets of 10 i'm pretty sure so yeah i'm intrigued yeah i was looking forward to see how they run once i saw the cast list and the description but given its release date I'm like oh that's the kiss of death so i'm guessing it's not good um is that specifically the weekend after what did you just guys just have labor labor yeah we had labor day Uh, so the weekend after that is like a is a just a pit is it september and january february are the dumping grounds okay for movies that are basically are not primed for success interesting every once Um, again there's one that's good and and you know leaps out of that abyssal pit but usually it's like (laughs) Oh my God! Wait, if it's getting released here, you have to assume they had expectations for this. Interesting. Yeah, it's Um, like George Miller's Three Thousand Years of Longing because they got shelved and pushed towards the end of summer. If that was going to be great, they would have put that out in June or July. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the very tail end of summer, it's like that doesn't that doesn't bode well for that movie. I see what you're saying, and uh, it allows Top Gun to get to the number one spot again after twelve weeks of departing. That is unbelievable. And I think the same thing happened in '86. Fourteen week gap between really Top Gun, yeah, number one spots. A fourteen week gap in 1986 between Top Gun being the number one film from June to September. I believe it's exactly the same history repeating itself. Well, congrats to Tom. He's already putting out ridiculous stunt videos for his next Mission Impossible. I'm sure everybody saw the biplane video. Uh, and uh, maybe, you know, we don't know who that enemy was, but if they were British, it could have been set potentially in London. You don't know how, how fast those planes go. They could, could have got over British seas and maybe Maverick's on the list. Who knows? <laughs> I don't think so, but yeah. I don't think so. Uh-huh. <laughs> I... but, yeah. any theories as to who the enemies are in that movie by the way a nondescript we don't want to offend anybody mm. you know eastern european of some respect yeah snowy terrain or... exactly so is it i don't i don't know but that's my guess somewhere down near the black sea okay. something along yeah. those lines i, I don't know fair they purposely made it vague. Yes. Um, at least I don't recall any specific nod to, and they definitely don't say when they're discussing the plan. No, it's the enemy, isn't it? The enemy, the enemy. Well, they could even say, oh, this terrain feature is in this locale, in these mount- in this mountain range or whatever. I don't remember that. I've only seen it the once, though. Oh, really? Okay. We're up yeah. to four in this household. Absolutely. Jesus Christ. I mean, it's good. Anna, Anna just loves it. We have seen it in various formats. That's the that's the thing. Like IMAX, we saw it in 4D with the, the moving seats. Uh, okay. Normal cinema, and then like we took my parents to see it, which is a format in its own. And then uh, at home, we've seen it at home now. And uh, yeah, holds up. Good film. Yeah. I mean, people walking out saying it was the greatest movie they've ever seen, I thought was excessive. But at the same time, it's like, that's an opinion... So if that's how you felt, well, then that's the case. Uh, I yeah, thought it was really tr- good. Yeah, it's tricky. It's tricky when you kind of, you know that someone's wrong with an opinion, but hey, how you can't really. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it's not. It's, it's, it's a lot of it is so that I think the more you watch it as well, you realize there are, a, there's a, a lot of spoon feeding dialogue. Um, you know, I think if they took a note away from the original movie, which it was, you can't really see what's going on in the dogfighting. It's a little bit confusing. And they were like, right, let's lay this out for you <laughs> in this new one. They've gone like, here's where everyone's going to be at every part of the movie. Yeah. Uh, but no, I really do enjoy it. It's a good, fun, like feel good um, sort of action. Yeah, it felt good. I like it. And we watched Val just before going to see it the first time. So that hit harder as well, the documentary Val. Yeah, which is good. It's... Yeah. revisionist history but it's a good documentary <laughs> i i wouldn't know actually i just took it on face value his his you know twenty thousand foot fly over island of dr moreau where he's painting himself to be this really great guy oh i see okay yeah. oh we did talk about this on set yeah. of the score yes you're right you yeah you're right it was like it looked after him yeah well of course it did it's his footage and it's his footage and also the it, I guess it's the documentary equivalent of when they, you know, 
they in, they interviewed the neighbor of the drug dealer who got shot and they're like he was such a nice boy it's the documentary version of that isn't it he's he's not got long for this world and they're being super nice in that edit but it was a good documentary though quite powerful yeah it was it was definitely worth the watch especially if yeah. you have any affinity to his movies whatsoever which i do but the you know me and me and my brando were just good dudes having a good time on that set and be like i have yeah. free account Every yeah. single account I've seen from that really varies in different yeah. from your interpretation of what happened and transpired on that set. Yeah, even that footage of him like interviewing Brando, Brando looks like he doesn't know who he's talking to. Ah, he's completely disaffected. He is yeah. he, the heat has overcome him and he's just lying in that hammock, and that's all I remember. That's it, yeah. Uh yeah, it's utterly you know, still good. Still a good documentary. Thoroughly recommended. Agree, uh, yeah. But anyway, so we're doing London-based movies for today's show. Yes. For the release of See How They Run. Should have varying lists on this. But the way the show works, we set a topic. We go our individual ways. Create personal top ten lists. Show back up here. I do my bottom three. He does his bottom three. I do my next two. He does his next two. Then we trade one apiece. Once we have revealed our personal top ten lists... We create the shows between the two of us. Um, Beautiful. Now, would you like to go first or would you like me to go first? Um, I'll get mine out first, okay. shall I? Sure. And then I feel like uh, I have imposter syndrome. At, so I feel like I'll get mine out of the way. So 10. You through, live there. How can you have imposter syndrome? Like On the show, a- I mean, on the show. Yeah, but it's, it's it's your opinion as your favorite 10 movies. Keep that in mind. Okay. It's all uh, it is. Yeah, it is. Uh so uh yeah, I'll so I'll start with my 10. Yeah, start with number 10 and then if we have it in common, I'll I'll tell you punt if it's punt, higher yeah. than 8, 9 or 10. Great. So, um my 10 probably I guess should be higher. But I think, and it's not always the case, but sequels for me have damaged the overall opinion of the movie. That does happen. Uh, some people say you can have the movie in Solus and it's fine. But in this case, it has damaged the overall opinion of the movie. So my number 10 is The Kingsman. Okay. So the you haven't got my side list. I do not have it. Okay, cool. Um, so yeah, this film, I feel like it uh, it kind of rides that perfect uh parody but taking itself seriously line i think kingsman is to the spy genre what like scream is to horror where it's not scary movie parody level and it's certainly not a take itself seriously halloween style movie this is uh, a parody that actually has some gravitas actually has some uh, very very well choreographed scenes as we know we've played on set of the score uh the free bird from the church scene right a mm-hmm. few times now very very well made movie um but it is a parody of that genre so it's not i guess scary movie would be austin powers and like james bond would be the halloween and this kind of sits in that perfect it is parodying something but it's taking itself seriously and i kind of like that uh and in some respects it's not as corny as some of the james bond stuff right so i, I kind of like how it's accessible to non 
Bond fans, which is something that the Daniel Craig era also played with. But yeah, I really do like this. It, it's colorful. It pops. Uh, it's got a crazy villain. Um, mm-hmm. And an everyman, which James Bond never does. James Bond's always a superior to the audience. He's just a better guy than the audience. He lives in that world. But this is a an everyman, almost like, the, you know, the dregs of London are called upon to become the hero of this movie, which is an interesting take as well. It'd be like James Bond uh, taking on a, a Robin to the Batman and like, you know, training someone from scratch. Um, I also think this probably has more in common with Men in Black than it does James Bond. There's a, a lot of like Men in Black sequentials in it. The entire... Uh, group of kids learning to, you know, the best of the best of the best, as they say in Men in Black. Yeah. And they're sort of, and Eggsy's the one that sort of thinks a little bit angular to the rest of them. Um, actually, the first time I watched that film in cinemas, I was thinking, oh, this is Men in Black reincarnated, this whole thing, but with uh, bad guys and not aliens. Um, so, yeah, definitely set in London, mostly around the Seville Row area where you get the really, really expensive suits. Um, and yeah, very, very British, this film. Um, I'm a fan, but like I say, the sequels have done some damage to my overall opinion of the franchise and that's why it's fallen to the bottom of my list. Yeah. Golden circle doesn't help. I mean, it's not quite matrix level where I don't, I can still find some sort of redemption within golden circle. There are moments in them, whereas matrix, the follow-up to, just leave such a bad taste in my mouth that it's tough to watch them and still enjoy even scenes. There's, there are like, uh, you know, when Zion and all the Sentinels are coming down and they're just, they've got those big mech things and they're firing up. It's a very cool visual, but I can glance over it. Whereas uh, golden circle doesn't hurt my appreciation of the first Kingsman. I, uh, to the degree that, that you're describing, um, yeah, it's really good. It's an updated Arthurian tale yeah. where you have someone coming up, rising up, and I like it. It seemed as though it was going to be the Colin Firth, we're going to turn you into Liam Neeson. Here's right. your late life action right. flick, and maybe now you'll get this second run like Neeson, which maybe he's eschewed a bunch of those projects. I don't know. Or perhaps it wasn't as taken as uh, the others, so he doesn't get thought of in that regard. Right. But it was a nice departure from what you anticipate from Colin Firth and my introduction to Taron. I didn't know him before that. I don't know if he'd done anything really before that. Uh, no, I think you're right. I think that is everyone's kind of introduction to him on that level. And I've pretty much enjoyed him. I think everything I've seen him in uh, since then. He's got the new yeah. show on. I don't know if it's out over there. Blackbird. Yeah, yep. that's out here. Yeah, on that was Apple, really good. Right? Yeah. I love the Rocket Man. Yeah, great. Um much I think people like Bohemian uh, Rhapsody. Yeah, agree. I think people like um Eddie the Eagle a little more than me. Yeah, it's uh, a fun movie. Yeah, I thought it was fun, but people were crazy for it. Maybe I didn't I didn't get that kind of level. But yeah, he's um yeah, he's an interesting talented dude and it'll be it'll be interesting to see where he where he goes. Yeah. Um but yeah, and Colin Firth, I'm sure he was inundated after that church scene. He really threw himself at it. Um, yeah. Yeah, really cool scene. And I think if you, 
I think the I mean I don't need to be the one to tell people to give that scene credit, but if you think of stuff like the the apartment fight in Bourne, which is also the shaky cam, but you really can't tell what's going on in the Bourne films when that shaky cam's happening. It's too it's cut up so much, but this one, even though there are hidden stitches in it, you actually follow someone through the scene. You have this, mm-hmm. you know, protagonist that you're following through the scene so well that you actually understand where everything is happening, which is uh, a masterclass. Uh, I think Kingsman, Kingsman probably the first one is the only one that really I would go and uh, YouTube scenes from. Whereas Golden Circle, maybe the car scrap at the start. I don't really have anything in mind where I'm like, oh, I'd want to go and watch that scene. And then uh, the King's Man, I really didn't enjoy at all. Um, maybe I was too excited for it, but I really didn't enjoy it. I had a, just it just yeah ugh. I liked it better than Golden Circle but it was still okay. it left you wanting yeah mm-hmm. um, had high aspirations sure yeah um, plus the, the reveal on the villain I was like well that's the only guy we haven't seen for quite a while of course it was, it was really an, I, it was really annoying I actually on that reveal I was I was going well obviously that's not even yeah I was so annoyed I you know paused it we watched it at home which again i I didn't give it its due it didn't actually come out of cinemas here so we watched it at home so it's not the best format to watch it in but yeah i paused it and said to anna well obvious like i thought they were setting it up that you would think it would be him and then obviously they're gonna twist it because that's what a twist is this thing was just like here's who the villain is probably gonna yeah. be and then reveal oh it's him oh here's the okay. gun in the first act and if you show it in the first act you need to reveal sure. it in the third yeah yeah, Chekhov's uh, villain. Yeah, um, so there we go. That's my number 10. Do I keep going? I keep going, right? Yeah, what's your number nine? Okay, number nine. Um, this is a, just a, a classic. Um, I, I think it has way more to say for itself than people give it credit for. My number nine is um, Mary Poppins. Uh, it's on It's on my honorables. I did not put it on. Okay, I cool, about it. cool. Yeah, so... I think this, uh, I hope it doesn't become a running theme, but it might do now, like quickly thinking about it. But this uh, is a really interesting, timeless movie. And I mean that in in the sense that not only is it enjoyable to put on today and, and get something out of it, and the music's obviously fantastic, but it's timeless in its social commentary. This film about, um, you know, giving your tuppence to pigeons, who I guess would be, considered um maybe the downtrodden in uh working class england um maybe immigration coming into that storyline as well but yeah giving the tuppence to the pigeon and not the bank and then you know the woman sat at the bottom of the steps of the bank it's like you know she's at the bottom rung of the capitalism ladder um that there are still things that work today just in that sort of commentary um i'm pretty sure that the chimney sweepers having black faces is also to do with that but don't really want to talk on it um because you know it it was i don't want to say of its time because that's an outdated (laughs) cliche but yeah that is probably trying to say something too but uh yeah and i also like the fact that mary poppins as a nanny is i would consider double what peter pan gives you so peter pan comes along and he teaches adults to stay young mary poppins does that but also tells the kids they've got to be responsible and kind of she gives you twice as good lessons as uh, Peter Pan. So double the Peter Pan for me. 
Um, yeah, I, I really, really like it. I think, I think uh, Julie Andrews just, just is unbelievable. The, the distance she holds from the kids, not just physically, but just in her look. She, if you watch it again, she kind of just maintains this distance from them because she knows she has to go. She's, she's finite. Mm-hmm. Um, she hasn't got any kids of her own, so she doesn't get to take these kids home with her. And she maintains this distance from them. Sometimes she lies to them about magic. Sometimes she lets them in on it. There's all this kind of, you know, children are complex. They have complex brains. It's not all black and white. And she's trying to constantly play with what's reality and what's fantasy in their world. Um, and I, yeah, I really, really like it. She teaches Mr. Banks that, uh, she, you know, I think the obvious way for this film to go would be for her to come in and take down the banking system, to take down capitalism, to shoot sure. down that death, death Star, right? But she doesn't. She just teaches Mr. Banks that he can live the current life he's living, but with a bit more sweetness. Like, she doesn't say, am I allowed to swear? Are we swearers on the yeah. show or not so much? Go ahead. She doesn't say, fuck medicine. She says medicine's sweeter if you take some sugar with it that's the message for uh having a life where you have your security and your stability but you are altruistic and kind that's you know you can't give everything up because you think it's better off for you know someone in a tougher position to have your house no one wants to do that people want their four walls and their roof and their nice things but you can do things to help the medicine go down uh, I think there's a, probably a bigger message there than even the filmmakers meant, but hey, ho, that's that's me. But that, that you know, I think there's something in there that that is a, a quite timeless. And even when we're talking about the situation with the world and opening your house up to help people that uh, have been left homeless by recent events, I think there's something in Mary Poppins that is letting you know that you can keep, you know, having nice dinners out and stuff like that, but you can sweeten the pot for other people if you need to, if that makes you feel good. Yeah. Look at that. I don't know that many people are drawing modern uh, <laughs> analogy from Mary Poppins. Okay. I mean, Mary Poppins is so good that Saving Mr. Banks, the best parts of that to me were the making of Mary Poppins. Agree. Agree. Not the exploration of her father and the, the backstory between the two of them. It was all the, how do we make these incredible songs and what is the story going to be? How do yeah. we bring this to life? Uh, yeah. But yeah, timeless movie. I, I, uh, I just, there's a murderer's row of really good films that have been set in this, in, in London. So you gotta, you gotta make choices. And I can't tell you the last uh, time that I watched Mary Poppins, even though I watched it a bunch of times as a kid. Sure. I, I'm kind of glad, you know, I don't want us to have the same list. We get to talk about more movies and maybe attract people to either watch them again, or if we have younger viewers, you know, go watch Mary Poppins. Uh, and I'll, I apologize for swearing, right? I'll go into my number eight. My number eight is my most recent movie on the list, I think um and give it five years it might even get into the top three i just think this is an absolute masterpiece i just want to see how how it kind of lays within a few years it's not quite got the time at the moment and that movie is boiling point have you seen heard of boiling no. point? okay who's in it uh it's stephen graham um okay tom tommy from snatch uh excellent actor i've seen him a bunch on the west end um he's always like in and out of plays over here 
and uh so the movie is about a chef i guess if you've seen the movie chef oh yeah i remember you've probably seen it featured on netflix or something like that like on the on the homepage of netflix i think it did only come out on streaming so it's basically a a movie about a a head chef at a restaurant quite a high-end restaurant in london who is dealing with both pressures in his personal life and the restaurant and the entire film takes place from the front of the restaurant, which you actually never see the the sort of fascia of the brick, but from the front end of the restaurant where all the seating area is through to the bar, through to the, uh, the open kitchen, you can, you know, you can see the chefs there, that type of restaurant. And then the back kitchen where the pastry chef and the, uh, cleaners, uh, the kitchen, uh, cleaners are the, the dishwashers. Um, and it takes place over 90 minutes and not a single cut. So it's done as a, as a play almost, so well acted it has three moments in there where i think people went to mess up their line accidentally um but you're like half an hour in no hidden stitches not what like in 1917 where they've done hidden cuts this thing is all the way through they did it eight times over two days and uh the eighth one was the one and and the day after they filmed it i believe we went into lockdown in the uk so they had uh they were supposed to have four days to do more takes and they they managed to only get two days and then they were locked down. And luckily they'd nailed this like eighth. Well, not nailed it. Like I say, there are three moments where someone goes to say something. It adds to the naturalism of that. And genuinely you feel like you're a character that follows Stephen Graham around as he's telling people off and uh, getting stressed. And you'll see like him go in on himself. Uh, things are really going wrong for him. And it's the boiling point, you know, uh, of that night. And uh, so it's just one evening in a restaurant on, on a, in a big, in a kind of a big deal moment. Um, I guess if if the movie Chef had that moment with the uh, the critic coming in, but the whole movie was that. And uh, I'll tell you about one particular scene. I really think people should go and see this movie. There's one scene between the um, the pastry chef, this woman, and her mentee. She's a mentor of this younger lad, and uh, Stephen Graham walks past as you are following him. Uh, you know, inside, um, I think it's Pete King who made the Mighty Boosh. You might have heard of the comedy mm-hmm. Mighty Boosh. It's him. Uh, I think it's him. And uh, it goes through uh, and it kind of catches the pastry chef. He And he tells the kid, pull up your fucking sleeves like that, carries on walking. You then get drawn. The camera swivels around to them. And he's created a uh, a like an inner custard for a pastry. And she tastes it and is like, gives him a glowing review. She said, you're, you know, you've got something, this is going to be great and blah, 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 blah. But she goes, but pull up your sleeves or you'll get fired. Right. Like almost like a mentor type relationship goes to pull it up. And you realize that what is this just genuine innocuous moment of pull up your sleeves and then her saying, come on, do it and pulls up his sleeves and she, he resists and you see cuts and you don't know anything about these people, but you see yeah. cuts on his arm and it's and she immediately starts to cry as his kind of mother figure within this restaurant world. And then she he carries on working. Um, you can see he's hunched and then she comes to the back of him and they hug. And I started crying and I knew them for 20 seconds. And it was like that gave me there were a million words of dialogue in that 30 seconds um better than most films could you know would give you in a couple of hours and it's just like that it's frantic um real uh i commend 
everybody involved with making that it must have been such a dance to get all those people and anytime you're watching someone and you see the rest of the restaurant obviously it's all going on all the time so people are continuously acting and then getting on mark ready for their the camera to swivel near them for their dialogue um impeccable so highly recommend that that's my number eight um all right well i haven't seen it so i don't have much of anything to add um but it sounds interesting so Hmm. hopefully i'll uh it'll jump to mind sometime when i'm you know searching out new movies yeah but boiling point um all right well you know five years if we ever do this show again let us know if you update that list yeah um all right at 10 so there's six seven movies all fighting for 10 so i just picked one that i don't think has ever come up on the show which is uh borg versus McEnroe. Did you see that about the Wimbledon final? I did see that. It's not on my list. Uh, Wimbledon, you know, a few movies came up featuring, you know, Wimbledon. I I lived in Ealing, so I was right next to Wimbledon. Um, Wimbledon movies came up a few times in my thoughts, and I actually didn't even consider Borg versus McEnroe for whatever reason. Just didn't. I didn't even think of it. Great, great shout. It's Shia LaBeouf, and I cannot for the life of me tell you who the other actor that plays Bjorn Borg is. But it's the contrast in in styles and how they're doing it. Borg is this methodical and meticulous and internal individual who was coached early on. Hey, you need to direct whatever anger and everything else inward and use that and focus it on your game. So it just becomes this, I don't want to quite say robot, but there's a passionlessness in his style of play when you compare and contrast it to McEnroe who leading up to that final had got into his basically part, part of his calling card, which is getting into fights with refs so much so that the crowd turns on him at several times during the tournament. Um, but McEnroe is in all awe of, of Borg because Borg is one, three or four straight Wimbledons and he's the youngest winner in Wimbledon history. And so the, see the two of these clashing styles leading up to this culminating moment within a final at Wimbledon. And there are two characters that I know um, back when I used to watch Borg predates me a little bit. And I caught, I think the very, very, very tail end of McEnroe. But when I was a kid, tennis was on all the time. Every major final was on at my house. Mm -hmm. So we watched a lot of tennis. And I think that was the general consensus with the populace here. It used to be, you know, Tennis stars were household names. Yeah. And to some degree, they still are. But in the women's game, like Serena's retiring, I can no longer tell you who her best competition, who the best competition is. And on the men's side, if it's not Djokovic, Nadal, or Federer, I don't know anybody else below those three names Mm -hmm. where it used to be just a whole, you know, cavalcade of individuals that I knew. So to see a movie, to bring to life two characters that existed in sports lore for me uh, was really riveting. And it's part of this LaBeouf cementing this guy can really act. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, he is not just some former Disney star and he's now rattled off several movies where he's been stellar in like peanut butter Falcon or fury, or he's got several under his boat. We're like, this dude is really good. And, now, it wasn't like officially sanctioned by McEnroe 
or Borg or the estates or any involved. So they didn't come to them for it. But I think it's an honest representation of the two individuals and the culminating final. And uh, I guess I don't want to spoil uh, what happens, even though it's history. You know, history. And, and you could easily go look it up if you wanted to. Uh, even knowing the outcome before I saw it, it still makes for a good movie. And I don't know that it's ever come up on the show or if it has maybe just once. So why not add it on? That's great. Great choice. Yeah. Like I say, that's a, that's a, that's a complete miss for me. I did come up with the obvious, uh, you Wimbledon know, Wimbledon based Wimbledon itself match point was another one, but yeah. Um, yeah. Great shout. Very, very impressive. Uh, all right. At nine, I've got Tinker Taylor soldier spy. Mm. Blind spot. Tell, uh, tell me why I should watch it. Well, do you like Cold War espionage movies? Uh, do you like the up. idea? <laughs> so the setup is it's MI6 mm-hmm. and they have a mole in their midst. So they bring in Gary Oldman as a now a former agent to come and suss out who exactly is the mole in all of this. So it's the back and the forth trying to figure out all the small glances and all the, the, uh, the interconnections b- between people. And the cast is excellent across the board. Um, but he's the central figure in all of that. And it's really hard to get into a discussion of it without kind of letting you know what happens in the movie. Sure. Um, but if you like any of that, the subterfuge, and the clandestine nature of Cold War espionage, it really hits the nail on the head. Okay. It's everything John le Carre puts on paper, brought to life on screen, which a lot of times doesn't translate because you need, I guess the, the general feeling is within cinema, you need some explosions, you need something to kind of pepper in. And this is a much more quiet and realistic version of the trade craft and what actually would happen. Um, plus it's a nice little period piece. Uh, so I think it's an excellent movie. All right. It's, it's well worth a watch. hundred percent. I will watch it and I'll feedback. Um, yeah, it's definitely just been always just outside the, uh, just outside the watch list, uh, you know, have to see, this movie tonight, you know, just sitting outside of that for a while. Um, so obviously it's on my radar. It's just one of those. I don't know. Sometimes you miss a movie and it just then falls away from you every time it's out of your reach. So yeah. Yeah. Um, you're reminded of, it and you're like, Oh yeah, I still haven't seen. Yeah. That. Right. Yeah. yeah. And even putting this list together, it was like, oh, you know, if I had time. So yeah. Um, okay, cool. And my number eight is the prestige. Punting. Okay. Time. All right. Uh, what do you got at seven? Okay, my number seven is 28 Days Later. That's a punt. Nice. Okay, that's good. That's good. So we had some differences, now some similarities coming in. Sure. What do you got Great. at six? Okay, number six. Uh, my number six is Paddington. Not on my list. Didn't like it or didn't think about it or what? Turned it off after about 25 minutes. Just no, couldn't get really? into it. Okay. Same thing happened with the Lego movie. Everybody okay. raves about it about 20 minutes in. Whereas I watched Lego Batman. I thought that was great. Cool. Um, okay. 
Um, Paddington's the movie I was thinking of with Pete King. I actually don't know now who directed Boiling Point. Um, Pete King did Mighty Boosh and he did Paddington. I remember it because it was a departure from what he usually does. Um, so, yeah, I absolutely, I absolutely adore this movie. I know you've you've heard people obviously rave about it. Um, uh, setting Notting Hill. Uh, the Browns live in Notting Hill, not too far from the Whoops a Daisy scene in Notting Hill, actually. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely adorable. Um, is it Ben Wishaw? Is the the, the voice of Paddington? Is that him? It sounds right. Uh, yeah, silky voice. Q from the Bond yeah. movies, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, just, I just love it. I don't really have like a, a deep. Um, I don't think there's much of a social commentary. Although, again, if you wanted to, you could talk about uh, immigration with Paddington. He comes over uh, from Peru and he just stands at the station believing there to be a family. Um, That scene hurts my heart, by the way. When I watch him standing there in his little hat and he believes that there is supposed to be a family to greet him and had the Browns not decided to stop, he is going to be there forever. Uh, I just, it breaks my heart. That, and I think this <clears throat> this kind of thing happens, you know, not to bears from Peru, but it really does happen that people come over here and they expect, um, you know, someone to ha- help them, take them in. Not expected, that's so horrible to say, but, you know, um, they just get stranded. And, uh, yeah, he stands uh, at... Uh, Paddington Station, where now there is uh, the cutest little um, statue of him at the real Paddington Station oh, um, yeah. platform one that we we you know if we're if we're in Paddington we will go and see it because it's the sweetest little um, statue of him bronze statue and he stands there and <clears throat> when the Browns pass him I think this would have been in your twenty five minutes but it's the most British uh, polite you know we've spoken about it on set of the score because. Um, I think uh, Hugh Bonneville, who's he, you know, I'm assuming Hugh Bonneville shot sometime, you know, other times in this list. He's such a good British actor. Um, he says to his children, he kind of huddles his children in, and he says something like, uh, "There's a suspicious bear over there." Like he kind of like, you know, as if there's someone dangerous, you know, this little bear in this little hat. Uh, and as if there's someone dangerous over there, he's like shielding his kids a little bit and like scurrying them along. And I believe Paddington doffs his hat and says, um, good evening like that. Mm. And Hugh Bonneville says, no, thank you. (laughs) It's like the most polite, beautifully British dismissal ever. I think his wife is the one that ends up, uh, Sally Hawkins, right? Yeah. She ends up being the one to kind of check on him, make sure he's okay. And, uh, I just absolutely love it. I love that it's um, set in Notting Hill and then Hugh Grant shows up in the sequel. Um, Yeah, I just find this film so terrific. It has actual... You wouldn't have gotten to a scene that has a another one-er, but um, an actual, uh, you know, no hidden cuts. It spirals down the staircase, taking in every family member on the way down and then out the door does a Dutch angle to unnerve you and using the perspective that you've now got this, this sort of really quite harsh Dutch angle, this corner of the screen up here Mm -hmm. is Peter Capaldi, 
the introduction of Peter Capaldi's villain who's poked his head out the window as they're leaving. So now you get in like a, almost like a 45 degree angle, the family leaving the house and the villain at the top of the screen because they've sort of turned you out of this uh, one shot spiral down the staircase. Very well done. Like I, I, I always like when, you know, filmmakers express themselves and this guy came from doing like really quite cheap looking television in Britain It is you know, critically acclaimed the mighty Bush, but yeah, really kind of stylistic. It has, it honestly has elements of it that Edgar Wright would be proud of. It has like very quick edits um, of, of quick montages in the same vein as maybe a Tarantino or an Edgar Wright would do. Um, really cool, actually, um, other than it just being the cutest little dude. Um, and no time spent with the children, really. Not a children's movie in the sense that the children are the lead. It's, it's definitely about Paddington and um, mostly Mr. Brown. I couldn't even tell you what the kids look like. I can't even picture them, but I know they're in the family, but it's not the focus of the film, um, which I, is a brave choice. Yeah. I can remember Hugh Bonneville and Paddington. That's it. Yeah. That is the focus of the film. And uh, yeah, I just, I just think he's the sweetest little dude. And also one of the best uh, passage of time edits in a movie, maybe that's hyperbolic probably is, but the start of the film, him, um, you know, going in with his paw into a jar of, uh marmalade i think it yeah. might have been honey maybe but yeah uh probably marmalade right um and then him discarding it and then it cuts to the end of his journey from peru and it's a whole discarded you know like maybe a hundred jars of marmalade just this edit so you know this much time has passed which is sure. uh is great it's great stuff like that it's cool lots of like visual gags in it really really impressive funny gags but uh yeah it didn't hit with you that's that's Fair. It was more so I'm watching it with Catherine, my wife, and she wasn't into it. So it's just like, uh, you know what? I'm I'm not absolutely in love with this, so I'm fine if you want to turn it off. Sure. But, you know, if she picks her phone up in the first five, ten minutes, it's like, okay, well, and then maintains being on her phone for a while. It's like, all right, yeah, well, she's not jazzed about it, so we can watch sure. something else. Pick something else, yeah. Yeah, there is a there is a joke in it, which is one of those that y- you really ride the line of of too corny, and it's uh, the villain chasing uh, Paddington through the streets of London, and he's somehow got on. I think he's on a helium balloon, like floating above the houses, and the sat nav um, says, uh, "In one hundred yards, bear left," <laughs> and he looks, and the bear is over to the left, which you know. I found it very funny. I like that kind of stuff. It's definitely a kids' movie. I'm looking forward to Ezra seeing it. That's my defense, I guess. I don't need to defend Look, it. Look, we'll yeah, it. yeah, yeah. It it got a sequel that did that. Some people feel is better than the first one. Yeah, I I don't think it has the the gravitas, but probably funnier the second one. If that's what you're looking for out of the movie, then it's probably a better movie. Yeah, it did like insanely well. So you're not alone. I would imagine most of the people listening and watching are fans of the series as well. So. Sure. All right, so that was uh, your six? Six, yeah. Over to you. All right, my seven is V for Vendetta. Um, I, I saw this movie one time. We've done a lot of it on the on Set of the Score, um, using the actual score. But uh, no, take it away. I, I remember, yeah, the, the I remember enjoying overture. it. Yeah, I remember enjoying it very much. Um, it's come up on a number of lists for the show. It's a wrapped up in, in an excellent action movie is also a political intrigue and the corruption of power. 
and how people in these positions will manipulate and connive and do everything in their power uh, or everything in their ability to maintain that power. And it is a reflection upon society because you can easily see this happening in various ways currently and will continue to happen uh, for the rest of time. So long as humans are being cunts to one another, which is never going to end. Yeah. Things like this will always exist. And Hugo Weaving's voice is a character in and of itself. It's just so impactful. You never see his face. He's always behind the Guy Fox Max mask. And uh, it's still just as good. I can listen to that, that, that timbre of his voice as he slowly explains whatever is happening, or he has to explain to Natalie Portman or try and help guide her down a path of revelation. And so she can piece it together herself. Uh, I can understand why the sonorous tones of that, when it comes across televisions in Britain would draw you in. Uh, Mm -hmm. But it's a, it's an excellent movie. It's one we've talked about a great deal on the show so we can move on. Okay, great. Yeah, I will have to revisit it. I'm pretty sure Anna's never seen it. So that might be an, uh, a good reason to put it on. Um, but yeah. Okay, cool. Good choice. So we are, are we now going my one? six. Your six. I apologize. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Uh, my six is Snatch. Okay. Uh, that's my five. So that is a punt. Punting, so we're going to take probably. a quick break right now. Okay. And uh, hear this word from our sponsor. And then when we come back, we'll be discussing Snatch. Spoilers. All right, there we go. And so you have it higher. Um, so please go ahead and start the snatch discussion. <clears throat> okay. Here's the um here's the thing I will have to say about snatch. I haven't seen this movie. This has been on a watch list for Anna and I. I haven't seen this movie in a while. Um we use a bunch of songs from it on Settle the Score, I have done. And uh I every time it comes up on a list for Settle the Score, I think must watch that again because it's arguably one of the most rewatchable films um, out there. I think in terms of like what makes a rewatchable film where it's like doesn't have any fat on it, like Brad Pitt in the movie. Um, it's uh, funny, very very funny, quippy, fast, great plot, complex enough plot to enjoy multiple times, I would say yeah. probably. Um, but yeah, I I've seen it a couple to three times, not sure, but not in a while. Um, and so I stuck it in the five. It took out everything bumped down one and it took out a movie that I thought might be not quite worthy of the list anyway. So that's okay. But I did want to discuss it. I'll mention it in the honorable mentions. Um, but uh, I don't have an awful lot to say about it. I remember uh, almost everyone's name in it. I remember, you know, specific plot details, but overall my sort of feelings on the film uh, kind of have a void. I want to rewatch it. So I think I'm, I'm kind of uh, deferring to you to discuss it in, in detail. Well, what you brought up before, there's no fat to trim. I think, one of the most impressive parts to me about it is it's populated by a, an entire world of eccentric characters. And at no point do you feel that they're cartoonish, ridiculous, over the top or misplaced. 
they all feel genuine and natural within this world of well if if you exist within the the dregs of crime you're going to run into a brick top you're going to run into a this type of guy or that type of guy or and all these you know nicknames passing for actual names and that's how everybody refers to them that's how they know them and so to do that, like on the heels of Lockstock and be like, oh, you're just going to make a knockoff version of what you've already previously done. But to sure. build upon that and actually make a unique standalone film, because I like both of those, Lockstock uh, could have made the list if there weren't a bunch of other uh, possibles. But he's also done it again with The Gentleman. The Gentleman, I don't think is as good as these, uh, but I still think it's a really good film. Um, But Snatch, I mean... You brought up, you know, Brad Pitt playing a gypsy, which was the part that he chose uh, when Guy Ritchie reached out to him and said, would you like to be in this? He's like, yes, that's the part that I'd like to play. And Ritchie didn't know if he wanted to give it to him or not until he came in with this full gypsy accent and whatnot. And then they, I think, made the choice to do subtitles uh, after that because just it's it's almost indecipherable at numerous points. Until you get like the rhythm of what he's saying, especially... Somebody here stateside, because I'm not around the various accents mm-hmm. that you may have that have populated your life. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I've, you know, I might be able to more easily navigate southern accents and some thicker ones there. Although I've got a family member that it took me two days to figure out what the fuck he was saying. <laughs> it's not an exaggeration. We were watching college basketball and they started talking about the action on screen, and I finally understood that was my Rosetta Stone. And then from there on. I could understand what he was saying, but before that it was, it's well, he's from uh, right outside of Baton Rouge and it is a thick, thick Baton Rouge, right? Thick, like Creole infused. I don't understand a third of what's coming out. Like I don't understand a third of the words and the other two thirds, like it's practically indecipherable at times. (laughs) Uh, But Casting, you know, bringing some of the mainstays that you've had in Jason Statham and Vinnie Jones, but bringing in, you know, Brad Pitt and uh, uh, um, Dennis Farina and Benicio yeah. del Toro yeah. and uh, Stephen Graham, who you brought up. Um, it's it's just he manages to write tons of different interesting parts, and nobody really dominates screen time. And yet you feel like you know all these people and everything about them. It's really, it's really good. I recommend Snatch, you know, thoroughly. Yeah, I, yeah, so absolutely, yeah. And it, it, you even talking about it makes me want to watch it again. There's, there's so many. It's so quotable as well. So many good lines in it. Um, yeah, and I think I genuinely thinking about it as you said the couple of names there. I think it's it must be. Statham and Vinnie Jones's second ever movie because they got their first gig with Lockstock and then this mm-hmm. is the ne- I think both of them ha- that's their second ever movie and certainly Statham you start to see he's gonna be all right you know he's, yeah he's really really competent in that film in Snatch yeah um, yeah Vinnie makes a bunch of like you know straight to streaming action films and shit now if you go look it up. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I didn't really follow his career, but uh, yeah. Um, really, really good choice. Obviously we're only one apart 
on that. Um, but it did, yeah, it, it, it bumped in because I felt like it belonged. But in terms of 10 of what I would consider my favorite movie set in London, um, I felt like I hadn't seen it recently enough to discuss it. But I felt like... I, I was confident you'd have it, but I felt like it should it should get there. It should get the double up so it belongs on that final list. Um, so, yeah. All okay, right, so, so that was your five? That was my five. So we go to your five? Yeah, my five is A Christmas Carol with George C. Scott. I have not seen this movie. Um, it's It was the one of all the Christmas carols, that one and the Disney one, were the two that played in my house every Christmas, but the George C. Scott one was my mom's favorite. So that one never missed a year that got played at my house. So that's the one that in Scrooged, but that's obviously said in New York. Yeah. Um, are the two that stand head and shoulders in that world to me? Huh? Um, Cause the George C. Scott's got, you know, it's got some of the darker elements that, uh, that I think, you know, you see in the story and whatnot to get a little bit more glossed over in other ones, or they they dull the rough edges of it, so it's a little bit more palatable because kids are going to be watching this, and uh, just to show, hey man, if you continue down this life, here's the collateral damage of the choices that you make. Like there is a cause and effect to everything that you're doing, whether it's good or bad, and here are you know, the choices that you made previously and that you're making currently and where they're going to lead ultimately if you continue down this path. And it's a nice encapsulation of what we try and do at that time of year, which is just be a little bit nicer to those around you and try and help out <clears> and <throat> give back and spread a little bit of joy in this world um, that you're going to forget about the other 11 months of the year. But we're going to try for about three and a half weeks of one month to not be a dick to everybody around you in the world. And I watch some variation of a Christmas Carol every year. Uh, although I think this past year was the only year I didn't watch a single Christmas movie. Um, just cause we were in lockdown so much. It didn't really feel like Christmas <laughs> just came around. It's just like, yeah, it's here, I guess. And it was another day on some level sure. as any other. And it just, I don't know. I wasn't really in the, although I decorated like crazy and I put up a ton of lights and covered the outside and inside of the house and did what I could, but uh, I didn't watch. I don't think I watched a single Christmas. So this might be the first year that I watched some variation of a Christmas Carol in my entire life that I can recall. Interesting. But a Christmas Carol with George C. Scott is the one that I've seen probably what year, the most. What year is that movie? Uh, I would era? say mid mid to eight late 80s okay all right okay well um yeah that one it's not even really on my radar i guess because um there have been so many versions of it uh i don't recall it being a big deal here at all um yeah i mean the muppet christmas carol was the one that we had on every every year I feel like even if I'd have thought of that, I don't, it must be set in London, but I guess it feels like it's set in kind of Muppet land. It feels like cobblestone in Muppet world. I can't even picture it being having a kind of London vibe. I wouldn't have even thought about it. Interesting. Dickens set it in London, 1984. 
I guess I guess it would have to be even the even the Muppet one. And I think maybe if I'd have thought about it, maybe that would have found its way to the bottom of my list. Uh, it just doesn't feel like a London set movie to me because I never thought about it like that. But it must be. Um, okay, that's interesting. Well, this Christmas, Matt, I'm gonna I'm gonna watch that movie. I genuinely had didn't have that on my radar. That I don't know if it if if it made a splash over here. Interesting. There's been so many of them, right? That. And I don't know if, if my mom didn't watch it and love it as her favorite. I don't know that it makes my list because I wouldn't have seen it enough times yeah. to where it's nostalgic and it takes me back to being a kid watching it with my mom. Yeah. And you have um, plenty of uh, British fans that watch this and they'll tell me that, um, of course, they went to see it or whatever. But um, yeah, just don't. Yeah. Just see, uh, have you seen I, The I, Man I, Who I, Saved Christmas? I recognize a man who created Christmas or whatever Christmas Carol uh, with George C. Scott. I recognize that as a, almost a phrase. So I, it must be somewhere, you know, back here. But uh, yeah, okay, this Christmas is is uh, is on. I'll do it. All right, what do you got a four? Um, my four is um, one I mentioned earlier. Actually, it's uh, Notting Hill, the first film on my list that's named after a place in London. Not on your list. You don't like Notting Hill. Um, I thought about about a boy. That one was very close to making my list. Okay. Of the huge, you know, of his, I that's probably could be my favorite. Okay. Um, I think Notting Hill is Richard Curtis's best movie. Okay. Uh, that's a per- that's a personal feeling. Um, I think the. Um, there's a couple of like very British uh, nods and winks in this movie, like Dylan Moran going into a bookstore to steal books uh, where he broke out of a, a really kind of raw um, British sitcom called black books. He was the lead in that. Um, so that was kind of like a, for British fans, nice of black books, it was kind of like, ah, that's funny. Um, always like, pe- like swatting kids away, trying to steal books in his bookstore. Um, then is in a movie stealing a book, right? Uh, so, um, but there are a couple of moments in um, Notting Hill that I, well, first of all, I think uh, if you can picture it, uh, and if not anybody listening, go, go and uh, YouTube this after, when uh, she comes to Hugh Grant um, after all of their like back and forwards, uh, and also, that I think a lot of time passes in this movie that is almost, um, almost not recognised. They do a, like a, a season thing through Notting Hill Market, don't they? Where he's walking through Notting Hill Market, and there's like a season. Almost a year passes, but when you think about the film, you don't. Th- you almost think about it like in this kind of limited time. I I believe it feels like you know she was in London, and it was during that time that the movie is set. But actually, years go by without them speaking to each other. Uh, when she comes to finally like um, you know, lay all, all her cards out and kind of ask for his um, love, he rejects her in the most like you know British way. And I think that Julia Roberts, even though she's been nominated for Oscars and such, I think she gives her best performance in receiving that rejection. Um, okay. her, her smiling in pain and welling up in her eyes is stellar i will go and watch that scene just to watch how good she is and hugh grant saying you know 
I live in Notting Hill, you live in Beverly Hills, you know, this won't work. Her just dealing with that. She she'd never ever expected to walk into that bookstore and and be rejected by that guy. And it's incredible her reaction to that. I love that. Um and obviously it's quickly followed by because it's a Rich Kurt, Richard Curtis movie, it's quickly followed by him realizing he's a complete fuck up and of course he should chase her down. Yeah. Um, and win her back. But it's just so well done. And I also think the scene where they have the friends dinner party where he brings Anna uh-huh. Scott. And I don't think this movie, I don't think a movie, uh, you know, when th- there was a time when movies added stuff and you're like, God, why don't they do stuff like that with movies anymore where they kind of, it's not fat. It's kind of, um, it's almost like the thing I said about boiling point where it's just, you know, it's the 30 seconds of a character moment that you don't really know them that well, but suddenly you're invested in them. And, uh, Gina McKee, who plays the, um, the, uh, wheelchair, wheelchair bound. bound. Yeah. Her delivering the news that they are unable, like who's the saddest and who deserves the last cookie or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, her delivery uh, in a group of friends. I have groups of friends where it can the night can go quite deep um, and conversation can get quite serious. And then there's always someone with the perfect way to get you back out of that funk. Her telling everyone that she's unable to conceive when they desperately want a child and being consoled by her partner and the look they give each other. And you're like, I don't even know these people and I'm feeling everything for them. True. And then um, someone makes a perfectly timed gag about, um, no, sorry, that was pathetic, you know, and such and such hasn't got a job. So he's definitely the saddest, you know, brings them right out of it. And you feel lightened yourself. Like you were sat around that dinner table. I, I think Notting Hill in amongst its sappy rom-comness just has those few moments in it where I go, this is better than this. This is better than a rom-com. This is better than Love Actually that doesn't have any of that stuff. And it doesn't have any depth, really, for me. It's all either no, sap or, or, yeah. sap or, or, or satire. Um, but this film has a couple of grounding moments where I'm like, this belongs in any movie, this kind of thing. And uh, and for me, that's why it's rewatchable and gets me every single time. I think about those scenes sometimes, you know, just you know, when you have those scenes in your head, you just think about them. Gina McKee sold me. She genuinely, if she walked down the street, I'd be like, you're walking? You know, she really, really sold me. So, yeah. Fair enough. Maybe I need to see it again. It's been years. I've gone <laughs> back for certain scenes, mm-hmm. um, especially them trying to all in the car, running to that that press screening, so he can come back in. It's a nice yeah. moment. It still gets you. Yeah, the horse uh, and hound thing is very funny. You know, a young uh, was a Misha Barton, right? Uh, yeah, I think that, that stuff's funny, and it's kind of uh, you play on Hugh Grant's. Um, absurd mumbly like bumbly bump mumbliness but i think uh i genuinely think there are there are even the first time they 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 have their meet cute and he he spills coffee on her julia roberts plays it so naturally it's almost like uh someone she's obviously playing an actress she is an actress she's a superstar and she's playing a superstar and there's something about her that it was it felt more natural like she even smiles in their first meet cute when she's like this and she has this smile on her face at the first thing he says. And it's almost like you'd go, sorry, cut there, Julia, you corpsed. Can we go back and do it again? But it feels so natural. She genuinely like lends herself to this role, I think. Um, the bits I don't like are the clips from her movies, which are satirizing 
sci-fi movies and stuff like that they don't work for me they're too weird um okay yeah it feels i guess they had to make the leap from her being a movie star in a movie to then being in a movie in a movie and they really push probably too far uh but yeah other than that her acting is stellar and i would put it up against any of her roles honestly very very good okay well maybe it's time to watch Notting hill again (laughs) um all right so that was your four so my four is 28 days later the punt from you from earlier great that was my number seven um i still enjoy the living hell out of this movie uh, it was my introduction, I would imagine, like most people, to Killian Murphy. Sure, yeah. Um, and absolutely captivated by that guy from the moment he wakes up in that hospital bed and then just goes casually strolling through a barren and empty London. And to know that they technically got permits, but they had to shoot at like five or six in the morning yeah. because they weren't willing to shut down just what is it? Trafalgar square and a couple other tower, tower bridge. And yeah. Yeah. Tower bridge, a couple other major spots be like, you can have them when nobody's using them. Um, but yeah, that slow introduction, waking up in a world that no longer exists. So you're yeah. almost, you know, it's a, it's like landing on an alien civilization. You have these expectations as to what life is like come to find out that none of that, is what's understood. Um, yeah, when he strolls into that church and it's the first signs of quote-unquote life that he's seen and he calls out to it and that priest comes shambling towards him. Yeah. And he eventually has to hit him with the cans of soup or soda or whatever the fuck he's got in that bag. Yeah. Um, and then runs down that back stairwell and I think it's scribbled on the wall in blood. The end is nigh. And then finally reaches other people and then understands there's fragmented civilization still trying to to soldier on um but it's such a simple concept for a movie executed to the degree that it's still chilling mm. um and the speed of, of transition or, or transmission rather it makes more sense to me than in something like world war z where your like, characters eventually figure out oh it takes seven seconds and they're counting down and all that cut all that nonsense out somebody gets cut then are being a bit and they turn yeah and it's just a matter of time um and also discarding these zombies or these slow corpses just eventually inevitable death turning them into these rage-filled monsters that are barreled towards you at all costs i, I can't believe that's the first time i i believe i've ever seen that i'm not a horror guy so perhaps it does exist out there but uh, i remember a friend of mine told me you should go see this and i saw it in the theater and there's like six other people in the theater right. nobody was there and walking out going that was fantastic um but yeah i i even like the sequel 28 weeks later same yeah it's not as good but it's still really good mm. i appreciate the opening where it's uh, is it Robert Carradine? Carradine, who the main guy in Twenty Eight Weeks Later? Uh, Carlisle. Carlisle, that's right. From Trainspotting, yeah. Yeah, Trainspotting and Ravenous. That's potentially the first thing I think of 
which is weird because that is a small film on it. <laughs> I hadn't even heard of it. I was letting that one go. Yeah. Oh, it's a, it's basically a, a take on the Donner party. Do you know the Donner party? No. So um, a group of travelers were going West and they were trying to make it to California. And there's a pass that everybody had learned. This is the way you take. And they were taking another one was supposed to be a shortcut. And they ended up getting stranded up in the mountains and they turned to cannibalism as a form of survival. It's a true story. Okay. Um, so it is a take on <clears throat> the Donner party. Uh, I recognize it now that you've said about cannibalism. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. Donner party. I do recognize that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then there's the, the indigenous belief that if you eat another person that you take their power and essence. So that gets weaved into the story a little bit. Okay. And uh, I, I can't recommend it. And yet I think the movie is really good. Okay. All right. Well, I'm, I like weird movies, so I'll, it, yeah, it's I'll it's weird, it. it's unsettling, it's not fun, but it's also not at the same time like creepy, gory, like oh, he's hiding in the shadows. Mm-hmm. It's just un, there's there's only a few characters, and you yeah. understand because they all speak the same subtext. Yeah, that they've okay. kind of flipped over uh, to the other side. Okay. Um, but anyway. Speaking uh, of people eating people, yeah. Yeah, 28 days later. I love the simplisticness of they just eventually go out to a remote countryside and they're the whole up there and they're just so far away that, you know, you see zombies kind of crawling on the road towards them, but they don't know that there's anyone over there. <clears> they're <throat> just trying to find food of any any kind. And if you just remove yeah. yourself a far enough distance away as a food source, it's a survival tactic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think there were two endings, weren't there? Um, there were, yeah. Um, one was, they went with the sweeter. Yeah. Sweeter, Where the, the plane flies medicine. over. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think this movie is excellent. I'm not really certain why it's that far down on my list. I guess um there's been an oversaturation this reignited the zombie genre yes and it also then inspired the walking dead i i believe that timeline works out because it's a guy who kind of sleeps through the apocalypse um i i there are some like danny Boyle. i don't know if danny Boyle has ever done this style again this is so raw Hmm. like a documentary right it's like it's like all handheld yeah it's really unusual and frenetic some some of the edits are like i i i would forget i don't because i don't picture those scenes but you watch it again and some of the um action is so like crazy oh yeah so so cut up so so interestingly um uh and what i really like uh like i think everyone pictures him uh killian murphy walking in the in the street as you say what i really like about that is um, I think you could forget because you picture that scene so often, not you forget, but generally, um, is that there's this kind of um there's this kind of uh scene to scene zoom out that's happening in those opening moments where it starts with you see the hairs on his eyelash. It's so close. Mm-hmm. And actually a lot of the movie, unlike boiling point where you feel like you're in the restaurant or uh the scene in Notting Hill around the dinner table where you feel like you're part of the dinner party. This one, you almost feel intrusive in their world. Like you've, he puts you at places where you're not stalking them. You're too close, like way too close to his face. A lot of the conversations are happening. You're too close to them. It feels uncomfortable. It's always unnerving. 
and it starts the movie starts with him opening his eyes and you see the individual eyelashes as the sun's hitting off him and then him walking around the hospital it's kind of a mid shot and then in london it's this huge huge scoping wide shot and i guess the point is he's becoming more and more insignificant in his world like he is now an ant on the you know on the road, on the pavement or something like that he's 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 so insignificant and then so isolated and i remember watching it the first time kind of confused about what's happening i think on rewatches i feel even more nervous even though i know he survives the film because there are so many moments where he because he has no idea what's happened he puts himself in danger constantly yeah. constantly like 15, you're feeling like minutes. Yeah. that darkness means something that darkness means something and he, nothing ever comes of that stuff until the priest and i think the priest thing i i might be like mary poppins in this by reading too into it, but I be- it feels like a constant search for a father figure in this movie. He goes and literally sees a father as in a priest father. Um, the next thing he does is go home. And that, I think the note is another one that kills me every single time I see it. The from note his parents from his parents, the, yeah. uh, with, with endless love, we left you sleeping. We now sleep with you. Don't wake up. Absolutely. I literally just got chill. I absolutely love that. It's the perfect note. And and just the image of his parents entwined with each other. Um, so then that father figure is uh, his actual father is gone. Then there's Mark and then Frank, who he actually ends up calling dad at one point randomly. Uh, he, he He's like, thanks, dad. Very, very uh, quick intimacy. And then that guy, what's his name? Henry, whatever. Uh, the, the military. The military. Dude. Yeah. Yeah. So he's constantly on the on the lookout for what father figure is right for him. And I guess the point, if that is a point to be made in the film, is that he he was looking for the father figure in himself because he ends up being like a co-parent with this woman and the kid, right? Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, the inter- intimacy thing and how quick that is. I I always thought uh because of um the did any blood get in your mouth line. Um uh that when people kiss in the world of 28 days later uh for you and i to kiss our wives means very little you know in that respect you probably do it every day uh a kiss in the world of 28 days later is almost like having unprotected sex it's it's that imperative that you're not uh diseased so intimacy is amplified you have to really mean it when you kiss someone and I think the close-up of them kissing when they finally do, because you have the military guys that are treating women as uh, procreators, and yeah. when he kisses her, it means even more than a typical movie kiss because there's a risk involved with putting lips with someone else in a transmission of disease. And I think that's quite interesting as well, how every part of intimacy in this world means way more than... Uh, yeah, almost like putting it online with unprotected sex, I guess, would be to to actually mouth kiss someone. Um, there's there, Yeah, there's a risk involved, and I feel like them kissing means that much more. It's not just a typical, oh, these two are going to end up together. It's, uh, it's important that he was willing to and she was willing to. All right, what do you, uh, what do you got at three? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh same genre but slightly different i've got Shaun of the dead okay you didn't have Shaun of the dead uh, it's on my side list it was sure. one of the 17 or 16 or 17 or whatever okay cool um 
yeah, very different take on the zombie genre. Um, Edgar Wright's kind of breakout for most people, although I was a fan of Spaced, so I kind of knew him and Simon Pegg and Nick Frost from the from the sitcom Spaced, where they all come mm-hmm. from. Uh, excellent show, by the way, if people want to dig it out. Um, yeah, deconstructs the the horror genre in general, but zombies specifically. Um, and uh, it it kind of uses the mundaneity of uh, everyday lives in those opening scenes where the zombie apocalypse hasn't happened, but people are kind of just doing their job. Everything's very boring. They're zombie-like. And then you have the hoodlums on the street that walk in that kind of thuggish way, zombie-like. And I guess those two dynamics are the point of Sean's story, which are he's got Pete, um, Pete Serafinowicz, his his roommate. roommate. Yeah, um, who is that kind of get a job, be responsible. And then you've got Ed, who is this sloppy, irresponsible, immature one. And Sean is the, he's the aggregate of those two types of people. Um, he feels like he needs to be more responsible, but he also feels like he he deserves to have an element of fun in his life. Mm-hmm. And uh, And I think the fact that both Pete and Ed end up as zombies, um, is kind of the point. I guess, I guess the point that Edgar Wright's trying to say is you have to stay, you have to have both as you know, both facets of that world. You have to have, you have to be responsible, uh, uh, living, blah, 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 but have some fun, be a bit silly, make fart noises, do all that as well, but don't be all fart noises and don't be all shirt and tie, you know, find the line and you'll survive life. I think that's the point of the movie. Um, I really like it. Very, very funny. Uh, I think Hot Fuzz is probably its superior, um, okay. but not set in London. <clears throat> Starts in London, doesn't end up set in London. It start, it's yeah, like yeah. In a He's a cop in London that has to go out to... <clears throat> yeah. Um, so Shaun of the Dead, I think, deserved a place on the list. Interestingly, um, based on where these pubs are, uh, both Eggsy from Kingsman and Sean from Shaun of the Dead live in North London. Um, Shaun of the Dead, Crouch End, and Eggsy is some council estate up in North London somewhere near Tottenham. Um, and both of their local, I'm getting local in quotes, both of their local pub, the Winchester and the Black Prince, I believe. The Winchester is not the Winchester, it's the Duke of Albany in real life. Both of those are in South London where they filmed. So there's a... 35 mile trip <laughs> between their living location and uh the local pub but that's just you know how movies are made but that, I, th- I find that quite funny that if you yes. were to do like let's do the Shaun of the dead tour you'd have to travel you'd have to travel the extent of london to go to where Shaun 35 then... minute or 35 mile um it do, it wouldn't it would take like an hour to to traverse that whole thing Okay. I mean, uh, on the subway. Let me see. It might be like 20 miles. Um, but yeah, yeah, I won't look it up now. I'd do Google Maps. Maybe maybe 35 miles was a bit. Yeah, I think it would be. Yeah, I don't know. I just didn't. I'd never really visualized London being spatially that spread out where we're talking quite big. 30, 40 miles. Quite big. Yeah, I think I genuinely think it is about 30 miles between where they totally live in, good being, in North yeah. London and South London. Yeah, so I, th- I think that's quite funny, but that's about the movie getting made, not a... Uh, not, um, yeah. Also, Shaun of the Dead, um, 
is uh, one of those excellent movies that sets everything up in the first few minutes. The foreshadowing, um, yeah, you know, Edgar, Edgar Wright's Wright is really a, good at that. Really, really good at doing that kind of you know, you you don't quite understand what it all means until you deconstruct it later. But really, really good. And even the uh, uh, if you want to live like this, go. Uh, if you want to be like this, he says. To, Pete says to Ed. Go, go fuck off and live in a shed. Obviously, the movie ends with Ed living in a shed. Stuff like that. Um, it's rewatchability. Um, really, really good. And genuinely, heart. I love these movies that are so silly and on the line, and then they have these genuinely heart, heartfelt moments where uh, Sean and his stepdad have that moment when he's dying, and he's like, "Yeah, Bill, I, I, I only treated yeah, I only treated you that way because I, I, you know, I felt like there was more to you." then you were offering the world and he's like, you know, Simon Pegg really puts it out in that scene. You know, it's a, it's still, it feels a little bit like a sitcom cry, but I still think it's, it's quite powerful within that world. Um, so yeah, Shaun of the Dead, my number three. Um, okay. My uh, number three is the King speech. Is that on your Such list? Such a good movie. Such a good movie. No, it's not on the list. Um, I only saw it the one time. Absolutely loved it, but I've not I've not revisited. But it's such a good movie. Um, yeah, I've seen it quite a few times actually. Uh, but it also plays into a lot of the things that I have interest wise, which is just history and historical yeah. figures, and in a time frame that I've already read quite quite a bit on, and then seen tons of movies on as well. Um, so it just feeds all into that. And then seemingly on the outside, which seems insignificant, who cares if this guy has a stammer, what it represents for a nation at large, it really puts it into perspective how this could uh, affect you. And I know we've all, after the first bit of lockdown, we're all searching for some sort of authority figure to 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 basically, you know, uh, allay our fears and just be like, look, we'll get through this. We will, we can soldier forth. We'll make it. We just need to do these small little things and it'll help us get to the other side. And this is by comparison to a world changing war. There's still, it's devastation, but it's an easy thing to stave off. So long as you're take certain precautions can't foolproof it whereas a war is just like look there's going to be death and we don't know who that is it could be our youngest our brightest uh but it's inevitably coming so to have someone overcome you know the the mental hurdle of a stutter doesn't seem as though it would be as impactful as it is but ultimately i think that movie is wildly successful and firth jeffrey rush uh, and the cast at large just do an excellent job bringing that that story to life. But uh, we've talked about it a bunch of times on the show, so we can move on. Okay, great. Oh, well, that, that was really well said. Makes me want to watch it again. I actually love when you uh, go into it, and it makes me feel like I need to stick it on right now. That was great. I almost started playing the uh, the, <laughs> the theme the, over the top it's, of you. So it's so it, it, yeah, great film. I remember thinking. Um, uh, I remember really taking notice of Jeffrey Rush because in my little movie going world, 
I really only knew him from Pirates of the Caribbean at that point. Uh, it just he that's all I could kind of picture him in. Um, and then realizing how excellent he is. Um, yeah, I remember being stunned by him in that movie. Um, yeah, great. I think it probably gets a hard time like any Oscar winner does. It kind of... A little bit. A lot of people thought that other movies should have won that year. I was... Um, it was my choice for winner that year, but at the same time, it was like, look, if any of these others win, I think they're all deserving. Sure. It's not as though... Because there are certain years where it's just like, this is hands down my favorite movie of the year. Mm. Um, and that year, I remember saying... I think this one's going to win and I'm, I'm happy with that, but don't care. Yeah, sure. Sure. Um, I can't quite remember what, what it was up against, but yeah, is it, uh, I want to say social network. Yeah, and... you're right. Social network is the one that people go to now, right? As like yeah. it, it stood up. Most there. people still would say social network. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm a fan of both those movies. And I think there was, was that zero dark 30 as well? Yeah, sure. Yeah, it was. There's another one you could sell me on. There's the best picture. Sure. I yeah. love Zero Dark Thirty. Yeah. Great. Um, all right. What do you got at two? Great choice. Okay. From the past to the future. My number two is Children of Men. Uh, go for it. Have you not have you seen it? Do you like Oh yeah, it? I've seen it. I've seen it a couple of times. I think it's all right. Okay. It's... We've talked about uh we've talked about this on the uh on sell the score but i can't remember where you sit with it had you played the last of us or not uh was it one of those that you knew about it but hadn't quite played it through or something like that no i i uh played it because you can get part of playstation network um so i played it uh i got a ps5 like a year a little over a year ago okay so i tried playing it but the first hour is all slow tutorials and people like stick with it it gets better after that but i was just like I- i'm good plus i don't okay. really like zombie games so sure sure so um the uh so i came to children of men post last of us so i've played at that point i played through last of us a couple of times now I've, i think i've done it three times in total um and so children of men i had to almost remind myself that it inspired Last of Us, uh, they're essentially the same um, storyline. Uh, you know, a dark-haired, cynical dude um, who's lost everything in a global pandemic um, is tasked by a rebel outfit in a kind of a militant Britain, or not Britain in Last of Us, but a uh, militant world, a government, um, to transport a single innocent girl who within her holds the key to humanity survival. These are exactly the same stories. And so I came to children and men after, uh, I don't know why I missed it for so long, but I came to it after uh, playing through the last of us and um, a couple of scenes I had seen before, because again, it's a, it's a one shot heavy film with lots of hidden stitches, but there's a few really well uh, choreographed oneers um the um the the ambush in the car the camera's going from f- front of the car to the back of the car as they're yeah, so yeah. The as your reversing and there's like people being shot inside the car 
Um, the camera gets splashed with blood at one point, which it gives you that kind of documentary feel. Um, this feels in a lot of places exactly like a video game. And I don't know, honestly, if that's because uh, that's the style or whether video games then adopted this style because Last of Us was so successful and I've played so many like that since. Mm. Um, but it feels like when you're watching it now, having been a video game player, like the the camera angle choices, the over-the-shoulder third person, there's even POV shots. It feels very much like a video game. Um, and yeah, I get tons and tons of enjoyment out of it. Definitely set in London, although it has like elements of... Uh, they travel to, I think Michael Caine's character lives in Surrey. It's like uh, Farnham, which is the same woods. If you can picture where Michael Caine's character lives out in the woods, it's the same woods at the start of Gladiator. The um, Oh, yeah, the battle sequence. Unleash Hell. Yeah. It's that woods in Farnham, I believe. Um, but yeah, uh, terrific performances all around. Um it's just so interesting. I think the reason I give this film so much so much credit is because if I was if I was to stick it on now, I would feel like it's reductive of so many things I've seen. What I have to recall is this kind of kicked off everything I've seen in terms of uh, video game playing and storytelling in that world, in that in that uh, media. So yeah, um, I give it. I have to give it almost like a posthumous credit. It, I didn't see it when it came out. It would have been very interesting to know how I felt about it if I did see it in like whatever, 2006. But because it's kind of the film version, I think Children of Men will end up being the best Last of Us movie, even after the Last of Us movie comes out. Mm-hmm. Um, it just feels so good. Uh, what Neil Druckmann took, I know he he's a fan of the film and I know that he definitely, but it's not, um, it's not like I've clued into something. He he has spoken about it um, frequently. Um, but yeah, um, I, I absolutely love the that documentary style where your kind of cinematographer is filming the protagonist and then gets distracted by something going on over here and you turn and then you quickly come back because you're like, oh yeah, no, I'm supposed to be filming Clive Owen. Love that stuff. You really get to see how broad... It's almost, um, again, video game world, but like virtual reality where you can turn every angle and you can see which world you're in, even though the character you're following is over here. You can turn over here and see what's going on. and It feels like that, but uh, Alfonso Cuaron is kind of guiding you. Um, so, yeah, I, I hold it in high esteem. It would be interesting if it was the first of that style that I'd seen. Uh, it would be interesting to know my views on Last of Us, which I thought was uh, a pioneer. Obviously, it kind of it was a bit of a copy. Okay. So, yeah, it, it's my number two. Uh, definitely London set um, in twenty twenty seven. Not far off <laughs> in the real world. Um. All right, my number two is uh, Sherlock Holmes. Oh yeah. See, this is one where it comes up all the time. You t- you've told me to watch it before, and I I just haven't gotten to it. You've told me how good it is before, so blind spot. Which is weird to me just because they had a sequel both did really well at the box office so much so yeah. that there's a third one uh coming on the pike yeah um and you haven't seen any of them for the amount of movies that you've seen it's just a uh, uh, it's interesting it's really um, weird i th- i think it's mi- it might be to do with the fact that um the tv show sherlock was around and i was into that and 
it might have been something like that where it just felt yeah. like I don't need to do another Sherlock right now whilst I'm still kind of in this. Maybe. I have no idea. Yeah, I'm, I, I think that TV show is, is good. I don't think it's great. And I'm in the minority. Most people think it's the best. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, um, it's a nice, like, a, a, you're taking, you're transporting back about 150. It's, it's looks to be Edwardian England. That would be my yep. guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but to see someone that has managed to accumulate the knowledge that he has, uh, and he's smarter than everyone else. Everybody knows that he's condescending about it, but yet it's Sherlock, you let him uh, go the back and forth between him and, uh, Jude Law's Watson. It's a great, they're a great counterbalance to each other because his Watson is a doctor and he's still intelligent, but he, he also brings a little bit of fighting style and he's a good complimentary character overall. Um, but yeah, I don't, uh, it, it's another one where it's come up quite a bit on the show. Cause John and I are both fans of both those movies and depending right. on what day it is, uh, I like one more than the other. Whereas if you go by critical consensus, the first one is infinitely better than the second one. I think the second one's just as good. And on certain days it's better. Uh, but it's all set in London and it's be you know, Mark strong plays the heavy. I mean, he's, he's always a good heavy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's this basically it's a, he's trying to take over all power in, in England. Um, subverting the parliament and everything else and uh you know sherlock holmes has got to stop him and then be damned if he doesn't do it amazingly considering Mm -hmm. it's sherlock but uh yeah it's an excellent movie i I thoroughly recommend it i'm assuming it's easily digestible as well in terms of oh it's an easy watch right it's not like uh, you have to psych yourself up for it like no no it's super easy right and richie has a really cool take on his fighting technique. I've seen that. I've seen yeah. that. The diagramming yeah. the action before it comes because it comes so quickly that the fact that his mind is laying out all this. Yeah. Uh, so it makes a character that you're not known as being an action star into one without stretching the bounds of you know disbelief. Yeah, I get you. Um, all right, so what's your number one? Well, we punted from earlier. Uh, okay. Yeah, The Prestige. Um, definitely London. Um, late 1800s, I'm guessing. Um, actually, The Prestige is uh, one of my favorite films ever. Um, okay. I love it. I um, The more I watch it, the more I love it as well, which I, is uh, is a great attribute for a film to have um i down there in amongst um some other movie books uh well other books you know the history of comedy is down there from your friend wayne um but the one of the other books down there is the uh history of magic david copperfield and uh copperfield talks about um the fact that magicians and movie makers are decades apart all the filmmakers are decades behind uh magicians magicians um 
invent ways of creating illusion that then film they'll then when they've used it enough in their acts will then sell to Hollywood for use in movie making. Um, and I guess CGI has kind of stumped that a little bit, but one guy who still tries to find ways of making things happen without as much CGI as other filmmakers is Nolan. And um, I feel like he must be a magic fan, like a proper um, the history of magic type fan. And um, I mean, you know, the prestige is on your list, but essentially I feel like it's this uh, Nolan has these films that feel meta anyway, you know, like inception is made up of characters, which could be uh, a crew in a, in a film set, you know, uh, with Leo being the director and uh, you know, um, Elliot page being the production designer and stuff like that. Um, so he does this this kind of meta thing anyway. Memento is another one that's quite interesting in terms of um, storytelling technique. But Prestige um, has these two guys going head to head and both trying to one up each other in doing the best version of the transported man. And I feel like Chris Nolan probably made the film with the idea that he is going to frame a stage and have Christian Bale go in one door and come out the other with no CGI, no cuts. I feel like Chris Nolan, he, he probably didn't achieve that because the transporting man has not been achieved in that way in real life. True. But I feel like he's kind of the magician uh, of this movie. He's kind of trying to figure out how to invent um, a magic trick. Um, unlike, say, The Illusionist, which kind of paired up with Prestige back then, The Illusionist was just so ridiculous. But this movie really thinks about and considers how magicians would uh, spend their entire lives desperate to figure out this this trick. And and um, the sacrifice is a, a kind of um, a person within their craft would go to in order to uh, achieve what they want to achieve. Um, so I believe that that Christopher Nolan is the magician and the prestige is his magic trick. Um, and yeah, I, I really, and I think, he, yeah, in other films, he's used certain elements, you know, everyone thinks about the rotating uh, corridor in uh, Inception. Sure. And, and things like that. And he does things that, you know, the best magicians do. Um, I'm guessing I, I'm fi- thinking of like people like Darren Brown, uh, Derek Dalgardio, these people that at the end of their show, they reveal something where you've known it all along. Um, Interstellar is one that, you know, you go back to the bookcase, you realize that it's a completely different message to what you knew of it when it was happening the first time. And in The Prestige, the opening 10 minutes to The Prestige, uh, uh, in a different way to Shaun of the Dead, are telling you what the movie is. They're constantly explaining to you, this is the movie. The title, The Prestige, comes up over the pictures of hats, which is the prestige. It's the, you know, the three parts to every, every magic trick is the the pledge, where you've got Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale are your pledges. Uh, the turn, they disappear. And the prestige, they reappear. Um, every version of that hat is Hugh Jackman's hat. That is the prestige. And the title, The Prestige, comes up over this. He's telling you what the prestige is 
from the word go. He then cuts to multiple cats. He shows you multiple birds. A kid seeing the trick where the bird is collapsed and then it's brought back to life. The kid says, starts crying, says, where's his brother? Well, that tells you what Christian Bale's twist is. There you go. It's right there in front of you. Where's his brother? That's the twist. Borden is Christian Bale's twin brother. Um, it's constantly showing you that there are twins to every... This trick isn't done via an illusion, uh, via a, a trick. It is um, death. That's how these tricks are performed. There's a, a crushed bird in the bottom of a trap door. Cut to the final shot of the movie. That's in the first 10 minutes. The final shot of the movie is the reveal of huge one of one of many in that kind mm-hmm. of Indiana Jones in the in the warehouse scenes Hugh Jackman drowned in the same way his wife was because he decided that would be the way he'd die every night or he would or the clone no way of knowing uh he would torture himself by dying in the same way his wife died because he is desperate to know one time whether it was euphoria or torture that she felt in those final moments. That's his whole life's purpose. And, uh, oh, it's just absolute. I just love this movie so much. I can't tell you is it. I will never bore of it. Um, yeah, I've, I've got way, way more to speak on it, uh, uh, but we'll save it for a whole prestige show. But yeah, there you go. That's, uh, I love it. Yeah. I got nothing to add. That was, I mean, I like the movie, but it's nowhere near. <laughs> uh, I now like, I'm just now, thinking oh shit maybe i need to go back and watch the first 10 minutes i've seen it uh you know a handful of times just because yeah. it's a chris nolan it's like oh, i'll go back and rewatch that whenever i'm in a nolan type mood sure uh i, t- I tell you the, the the uh summation of the movie for me is um because you know like there are there are probably about five twist reveals in this movie which uh, you could call it a little bit of um is a little bit laborious or a little bit egocentric from Christopher Nolan to be like, ah, this revealed and this revealed and this reveal. But there's a moment where um, in his desperation, I mean, if you try and even just break down what Hugh Jackman's character is, he's absolutely fascinating. He's uh, a British, um, a well-off British guy called Caldwell, who's playing an American like wannabe magician called Angier, who then becomes a French magician called, uh Danton. Um uh who then becomes oh and at some point is uh sort of interjected in with a drunk version of him that isn't actually him, but in terms of identity, I mean I guess the film plays with identity and who who is who. There's only one um Borden, Christian Bale, there's only one of him. He's just played by two people. Um, two sides, uh, two heads of the same coin, right? Christian Bale is two people playing one person, like Two Face. Christopher Nolan's kind of next movie has Two Face in it. I guess you could consider that um, Angier has left Caldwell so far behind. He doesn't even speak in a natural British accent when he's not around people. He's taken on the role of Angier. He's left his past behind, a bit like the Dark Knight's Joker. He doesn't. It doesn't even matter who he is. It doesn't matter, right? So it's interesting that Christian Nolan then went on to make Dark Knight, who have these two villains that I think are Borden and uh, Angie alike. Um, but I can't remember what I was going to say. Oh, yeah, my favorite uh, summation of the movie is when Angie, desperate to find out the trick, realizes uh, that it's just that Borden's a twin, 
him and Fallon, and they they switch roles every night because that's the other thing. He's desperate to know who gets the adoration. He says, um, "Which one of you gets to be the comes out the door?" And he says, "We changed it every night." And he's just so shrug of the shoulders of it. Um, but there's a moment where um, Angia says, um, almost quivering, um, like any, and again how Christopher Nolan must be a magician, a magic fan is that finding out how the trick is done is always the most disappointing part of the trick. Sure. And when Hugh Jackman finds out when Angia finds out how it's done, he says it was that easy, uh, almost quivering in like sadness and Christian Bale Borden says back to him. Um, and I think this is the whole film. He says simple, maybe, but not easy. And I think that is Christopher Nolan almost writing a line in about people's opinion of the prestige. It's simple, but not easy to make. And I think that's a perfect like summation of how the film is made. You know, it's, it's at the end of the day. Yeah. He gets Nikolai Tesla to, to transport him. That's simple. Now, you know, that that's not going to wow you anymore, but sure. But it's not easy to make a movie where the, the final twists are as um, upsettingly obvious as they are um, excruciatingly genius, in my opinion. Um, hmm. Um, All right. So my number one is uh, Topsy Turvy. The, have you ever seen it? No. What is this? Uh, It's Gilbert and Sullivan making the Mikado. (sighs) It's uh this is going to the top of my watch list. It's basically I mean it, it, they flash forward by showing you some but then they show you the previous stuff that they've done. It's all based around the Savoy Theater. Uh but then you have the owners of the Savoy with them and then all the actors and uh it's basically like I always enjoy movies about Hollywood. Well, it's movies about, you know, former Hollywood which was stage acting. And yeah. how the Mikado almost didn't happen, and then what they had to go through to come up with the idea, and then bringing it to life. Um, and I just, I, I've watched it. I don't know how many times at this point. Uh, uh, and I realized that it's probably not going to be most people's cup of tea, but for some reason, it just from the first time I saw it, I've always enjoyed it, and. Uh, with every passing year, I watch it a little bit more and a little bit more, and it's now going to be my rotation more than likely uh, for as long as I'm watching movies. Because thankfully, I don't have to go out and find it, you know, at a rental place or something. I can find it streaming somewhere. Uh, but yeah, it's come up on a couple of lists of mine in the, the recent history. That's really cool. I uh, will. That's yeah. That's going straight to the top of my watch list. Um. 99 as well. Mike Lee. I've I've seen a Mike Lee movie. I think I've seen Happy Go Lucky probably in a bunch of like plays that he's done, I guess. Yeah, it's basically a filmed play. Right. But it's behind the scenes of the play and you get to know the actors and it's all based on real people. So it's the actual actors and they did the character study and whatnot. And some of them have afflictions that they deal with, which are hinted at in the movie. And then I've done the research afterwards and be like, Oh yeah, that's this character was based. That is this individual. And they had this malady that they carried with them for the rest of their life. And there's hints at it within, uh, which I didn't know the first couple, couple times seeing it. 
I obviously knew that Gilbert and Sullivan were real, but I, I never really put much thought into the fact that the it's populated by, uh, you know, all the characters in it, as best I know, are real people. Now, there are certain points where, who knows, because uh, they bring in some Japanese uh, individuals to help flesh out the realism of the Mikado, and uh, because there was the Japanese expo in London, that's where the idea sparked from. Hmm. Um, so who knows if the people they interacted with there, if there's any record of them, them bringing it in, but, uh, yeah, you can find like Wikipedia articles on a bunch of the actors. Uh, but anyway, topsy turvy. Great. All right. I've got a lot of, um, watching to do. I feel, I actually thought that would be the case. Your, your, your film, uh, like mind library is much, uh, deeper than mine so yeah um I'm, I'm glad i've got some films to go and watch i think you have boiling point and i have like four four movies i guess four or five uh yeah i think boiling boiling point is the only one that i haven't seen of yours sure yeah yeah i think that's right um, and paddington you you could finish but also you don't need to at all and you, yeah, and you I, I i maybe sold you on rewatching notting hill that's okay um all right, let's do uh, this list, and then we got John's list, and we got to get out of here because this is we're at two hours right now. Yeah, I talk a lot. Okay, cool. Um, all right, so Prestige is one eight, Snatch is five six, hmm. and twenty eight days later is four. What? What do you have it at? Seven. Four seven beats. Five, six. All right, so we'll do the prestige. And 28 days later, then snatch. <clears throat> and then we don't have a single thing in common. That's so interesting. Yeah. So uh, my number one has is done. gone so topsy turvy goes in. Yeah. So we both have our number twos. Yes. What's your two? Children of Men. That's right. And I have Sherlock Holmes. Uh, I'll, uh, since you're the guest, go ahead and put Children of Men next, and I'll take Sherlock Holmes. Uh, I mean, I I, ha- I got my number one in number one, so I feel like uh, it's that's, that's a rough draw. It's all right. <laughs> Be nice to, to company. <laughs> um, let's see. And I have my three King Speech. What do you have next? Shaun of the Dead. King Speech is awesome. King Speech probably be on my list. All right. My number four has already made it. So what do you have it for? Notting Hill. And uh, your five has made it, correct? It was Snatch? Snatch. Yeah. All right. So Christmas Carol makes it, and that is done. Great. What, what have we got? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um. Well, I mean, since you're the musician, would you like to do the drumming, the banging? Yeah, sure. All right, let me know when you're ready. I'm trying to find a surface that you can hear. Can you hear that okay? Yeah. Okay. All right, here it is. The top 10 movies set in London. At number 10, it's A Christmas Carol. At nine, Notting Hill. At eight, Shaun of the Dead. At seven, the King's Speech. <laughs> Come on, man, we're at two hours. 
It's six. Sure. Yeah, like, oh. I was wondering. I was wondering. Do you wait for me to stop, or do you cut in? Yeah, I'm waiting for you to okay. stop. But I'm getting these long, oh, okay. sorry, like, sorry. oh, like, all right, go. Okay. <laughs> what have we got? What are we on? At five, Children of Men. Okay. At four, Topsy Turvy. At three, Snatch. At two, 28 Days Later. And our number one movie set in London is The Prestige. Uh, So there it is. I have John's list. What I can do. And he says... uh, Guys, as a self-professed, uh, pardon me, as a self-professed anglophile, it's killing me to not be able to do the show this week. But big thanks to Andy for stepping in to handle the co-hosting duties. Here is my list with one-line commentary on why I chose these films. Thanks to all the fans for sending along some healing, and I hope to be back doing the show next week. At ten, he's got V for Vendetta. I mean, how can I not put this on the list? A criminally underappreciated superhero film filter- featuring. Two damn good performances from Natalie Portman and Hugo Weaving. At nine, 28 days later, one of the best horror films of the 2000s and one that still resonates with us, especially as we glimpsed our world shutting down during COVID. Eight, About Time. Hmm. A recent personal favorite that I will always champion for anyone looking for a new rom-com or dealing with the loss of a loved one. Seven is Sherlock Holmes. Loves the chemistry here and shocking accomplishment to turn this old ass piece of literature into an action film franchise without losing the mystery. At six, A Fish Called Wanda, a comedy classic with the two Python members at their peak. Five, Chariots of Fire, a sports classic that still moves and inspires me as much as it did when I was a kid. Four, The Darkest Hour, Gary Oldman's Finest Hour. Three, A Hard Day's Night. A great window into the life of the greatest rock band ever at the beginning of their ascent. Two, The King's Speech, one of the best ones in a long time. Number one, An American Werewolf in London. An 80s horror classic that still freaks me out. Hmm. Good choices. A Fish Called Wonder was on my side list. Sure. Um, and uh, the one that I didn't get to that just got bumped off for Snatch was um, Sliding Doors because I think it's incredible that a movie that's just pretty much a rom-com with a little bit of a sci-fi element to it by having like alternate realities has created a phrase that everyone, even if you haven't seen the movie, everyone knows what a sliding doors moment is. And I think that's quite fascinating. It's kind of etched its way into our zeitgeist in that way. And it, the movie doesn't feel worthy of having a phrase in our language. Um, yeah. Like some Malcolm Gladwell, like book titles we know as like phrases now like everyone's sure. just tipping point or outlier or whatever um ten thousand hours that kind of thing uh but yeah uh, that was the one that just missed out um all right well before we get out of here is there anything you want to say oh just th- oh yeah uh well set the score is the only other thing i do um so yeah go and follow matt on youtube to watch us do that it's a really fun um, m- movie trivia game with uh, s- s- music at the center of it with soundtracks and scores. Um, I play piano and sing and Matt hosts. Um, and it's really, really good fun. And um, and hopefully we'll have John Roker when he's um, well again as a guest um, shortly, right? 
Yeah, we have them slated uh, in the next few weeks. So hopefully it'll be on the other side at that point and up for yeah. it. And uh, yeah, if you want to check out Set of the Score, uh, by the time this comes out, last week we had uh, Lon versus uh, Sam round three. And then next week you'll be hearing uh, Dan Merle versus Christian Harloff. Mm, so okay. uh, please tune in, check out. And uh, it's called Settle the Score. You can find it anywhere you get podcasts. And uh, my one plug, um, if you guys are so inclined, uh, my wife's pizza shop is in the middle of uh, the LA Times has their best pizza in all of Southern California. And she is one of uh, five pizza shops that has made the list. No way. So if you want to search out uh, LA Times and best of the Southland, you can find her in the pizza category. It's two saucy broads. So uh, please go. You can vote there. You can vote once a day. We'd really appreciate it. We've already made it uh, this far. So hopefully we're uh, apparently there's one juggernaut that more than likely is going to win. But uh, you never know. You never know. Uh, so go out there, search out the L.A. Times Southland Awards and you can find two saucy broads under the pizza section and give us a vote there. But that is it for uh, the top 10 this week. My thanks to Andy for taking time out of schedule. Uh, to uh, help us out this week and take over, fill in for John while he's recuperating. And you can follow Andy at STS underscore Andy M. Please hit him up on Twitter. Let him know what you thought about today's show. And you can follow me anywhere at Matt Nost. Uh, that is it for this week's top 10. And as a heads up, there will not be a top uh, topic thunder this week, just because when you guys email those in, a lot of times you direct them at John and I. Um, so I could have done it with uh, Andy today, but uh for fear of getting a bunch of questions where it's, it's John and I specific and we'd have to rifle through and it just didn't seem like it was uh, as easy as a plug and play option as bringing Andy seamlessly onto the show here. So, uh, so long as John is right as rain or at least good enough next week, we'll be back to doing our regularly scheduled programming, but uh, that is it for the top 10 this week. Thank you so much. We'll see you guys next week with a brand new episode. And until then, adios.